something about flight attendants they they look at you when you request air when you request ginger ale they just look at you like oh of course you do it's a great beverage it settles your stomach yeah and i'm trying it's like it's like soda with a purpose yo mic check one two one two we in the house yeah come on i ain't too proud to beg i'm justin party here on the debrief I am Stephanie Keen, your brown eye girl. And we yes. have the man, the, who's the pastor yourself. who's got it going on, Pastor Matt Brown. Hi, guys. So glad you're here and listening. Actually, I guess they're not here, but they're listening. Well, they're yeah. listening. Well, they're, they're here in, in spirit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We are thinking of you, the listeners. Do you know why? Because you, the listeners, often think of us, and it drives you to that iTunes store where you leave wonderful and encouraging reviews. I got, I'm so stoked on these reviews, guys. Listen, this one comes from a Japanese Sandalite, is how they label themselves. Yes. Here's the question I have. They are a Japanese person who goes to sandals? Exactly. Or do you think they like Japanese sandals? I have a lot of questions. Or do they live in Japan oh, and I listen to the think, podcast? And they're like a, I, that's one of the places I want to go. My wife doesn't want to go there. I bet you might have something to stay with. I know. So our Japanese friend, would you do us a favor? Give us some information about yeah, your identity. We need identity. to know more about you. Yes, yes I cl- identify yourself. Listen, this is so great though. Uh, they said, I find that virtually every challenging question that comes up in a corresponding Bible chapter is answered here. I think that oftentimes the controversial or challenging issues of the Bible are largely ignored, but not here. This has been an invaluable resource as a leader of a small group. Thanks so much for all you do, guys. Awesome. Well, you're, you're welcome. Thank you, our Japanese samurai. We love you. Like, oh, yes. We're oh, gonna, that's we got, we got undercover samurai and then the mm. no, undercover Eskimo. Eskimo and then sandal samurai. Yeah. Excellent. And then here's one from M. Schaefer. So much radness. It's rad. Another five-star review. My husband and I love this podcast more than a teacher loves to say. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Here, it gets better. The honesty and rawness is refreshing. And many of the questions have just nagged at me have been answered on the podcast. Justin is kind of like the Nacho Libre of Sandals Church. Yes. No truer statement has been uttered, Emma oh, Schaefer. Oh, it made me so happy you to see You are glowing. That. Stephanie is gem, truly outrageous. Now, I think that she's a character from the 80s. Oh, I have uh, no idea. I, I, I Googled it because I didn't know, and I'm really sorry that I didn't get a chance to receive what you were saying, but thank you. We're yeah. going to do some research on that. Yes, I think are. gem is like a rock star it's from like the 80s the TV right? show. But I was only allowed to watch Channel 24, or the Disney Channel, when I was a kid in the 80s. So That makes really so much sense. And here we go. Mm-hmm. And... Pastor Matt is a mixture of Han Solo and Obi-Wan, both yes. wise and snarky. My two favorite characters. I think dude. that is the hugest compliment <laughs> anyone has ever yeah. paid Pastor Literally, Matt. Pastor Matt's because face just lit up like mine when I saw Jimmy Chunker. and a blaster. Oh, a lightsaber Boom. and a blaster. Dude. <laughs> yes. yes, I work with 12-year-old boys sometimes. Exactly. It's beautiful. FYI, I was Han Solo my 12-year, when I was 12 at Halloween. I believe that with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, here on The Debrief, we are taking your questions about chapters as we're walking through the books of Luke and Acts this year at Sandals Church. So if you want to send in questions about anything you're reading through Luke with us, you can send those in at sandalschurch.com slash The Debrief. So today we are going to jump right into Luke chapter 16. And you warned us in uh, the last episode that this chapter was going to be a doozy. I believe Yeah, this is going to be the most difficult chapter to navigate probably in the entire uh, gospel of Luke. So there's going to be a lot of confusion. There's going to be a lot of questions. Hopefully that we can answer some of those today. But even as you, you know, if you read a commentary, you're going to get multiple different views, uh, passionate positions. So I'm going to try to guide you uh, or guide us through what I think is is the safest way to interpret um, these really difficult uh you know, teachings of Jesus in this chapter, but it's by far the most difficult as we look at the shrewd manager and then the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And then, you know, some some really meaty teaching in between uh, 
you know, the two sandwiches of controversy. So the two, the two piece, loaves of bread of controversy, I guess. Wow. Beautiful. So hold on to your hats Beautiful and glasses. Metaphor. Flip yeah. open your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 16. And uh, let's dig in. Yeah, I would even say that if you're listening now and you haven't yet read Luke 16, I would stop what you're doing, switch apps, just read through that really quick. Stop what you're doing. I'm about to ruin. Mm. We'll keep going. You can also stop, collaborate, and listen yes, exactly. if you wanted to. Yeah. So. Yes. All right. Are you okay? So let's jump right in. So verse three uh, and eight, it kicks off. There's really two stories, two parables that Jesus has got going on here. The first one's a shrewd manager. The other one is about this rich guy named Lazarus. So many oh, questions. A rich guy and a guy named Lazarus. Oh, yeah. See, Not to be confused with one another. Exactly. Okay, so verses three, and then it starts off like this. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me, and I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. And then he goes on, and he changes a bunch of the bills of the people that work for his boss. In verse eight, the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And is it true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them then are the children of light. Mm. So a couple questions for you here, man. Shrewd can mean dishonest or mischievous, but it can also mean like sharp and clever. So what is exactly that Jesus is saying here? And what's, what's he commending about this guy in the story? Yeah, so here, here's the problem in the controversy with the passage is Jesus seems to be indicating that he's complimenting this person for being dishonest. And so if you're new to Christianity, uh, nowhere in the Bible is dishonesty approved. So um, the Bible says that God loves the truth. We draw near to him. Uh, in truth. Uh, uh, Paul says, we speak the truth in love. So um, Jesus says, I am the truth. So <laughs> so this is a real, real problem for us as we approach this story. And, and, you know, if this is your first time encountering this story, you know, I've just seen people get frustrated and just literally I've had a person leave our small group years ago and, and actually walk away from our church. She's like, I can't believe Jesus would approve this because this passage is so, so difficult to understand. And so there's, there's multiple ways of looking at this. And so um, the parable of the dishonest manager, you know, some people interpret that what the guy ultimately does is he cuts his commission when he, when he pays everybody mm -hmm. back. So what he's doing is he's shorting himself, but I, I think that's a stretch. And so people try to interpret the passage that way to make Jesus uh, seemingly um, not complimenting him from being dishonest. And mm -hmm. the problem is he's called the dishonest manager after he chops the debt and, and, and it's considerable debt. Um, of his master's money. And right. so yeah, basically- like he, 50%. Yeah, he's ripping off his manager. Um, excuse me, he's ripping off his master as the manager to save himself. And so here's the principle I think that Jesus is teaching. And, and there's two things. Number one, Jesus is saying, do whatever it takes to take care of your eternity. And I think, I think we need to interpret, and that's why it's so important that we not just interpret this story on its own. I don't think that, that Luke is merely recounting uh, stories that, that Jesus talked in order. Luke is putting these stories together to, um, you know, multiple teachings and sayings of Jesus in such a way to teach us something. So he's trying to tell us what Jesus said, but he's also trying to tell us what he wants us to know and believe about the gospel story. And so to so, make that really clear, what you're saying is that this first parable and the second parable packed together are helping us understand one another. Right, and they may not have been taught in the same setting. Okay. So, so, so we don't know that. So I think that Luke, you know, Jesus may have just completely taught this, this all the way through, but there's some stuff that seems to not go and we'll get to that in the middle yeah. of the passage. But I think Luke is putting these stories together uh, in such a way to try to tell us something. And so okay. the first point is this, th this whole story seems to be focused on eternity. Mm -hmm. And so, because we're going to end with eternity in mind with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And so this story is this shrewd manager, this dishonest manager realizes what's at stake. 
So he realizes, right, he's not strong enough to support himself by manual labor. He's not humble enough to go beg. So he's got to figure out a way to take care of himself for the rest of his life. And so what he does is he does whatever it takes. And so what Jesus is doing here is, I think Jesus is commending the fact that this guy gets it. Look, man, eternity's at stake. I've got to do whatever it takes. And so um, the problem with, with that is the approach that he takes is dishonest. But I think what Jesus is trying to say here is, look, specifically to those of us who are believers, is you know we need to understand that people of the world oftentimes are more crafty than we are. And okay. so sometimes Christians check their brains at the door. And I, I see this all the time at Sandals Church. So they'll say, well, we don't need to worry about our finances because God will provide. I don't need to worry about you know whether or not I keep my job because God will take care of me. And so we become these fatalists and we divorce ourselves from any kind of responsibility in the process. And, and in that way, oftentimes people of faith are morons and that's just the truth. And that's why a lot of unbelievers look at us and it's like, it's just ridiculous. You know, it's, when we say it's in God's hands, yes, it's in God's hands, but God's hands have placed many of the decisions that affect your life in your hands. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what's so frustrating to me with Christians is they kind of check out and assume that God's just gonna navigate that. And that kind of thinking leads to disaster. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel thought we can do whatever we want. God will never allow, you know, Israel to be destroyed. It was destroyed. Fast forward a thousand years to the city of Constantinople, uh, now called Istanbul in yeah. the country of Turkey. You know, a lot of people don't realize that was the capital of Christianity for 1400 years. It was the new Rome. Uh, you know, it was it was the center of, of all thought. Um, and people don't realize, you know, when you, when you study, um, uh, you know, the enlightenment period and all those amazing artists and everything, that mm-hmm. whole renewal, the Renaissance that took place in Italy. Mm-hmm. The reason that happened is because they all had to bail Constantinople oh. because it, the city was burned and they all fled to Italy. And there's this resurgence of ideas, but all of that at one time was there. And they thought God would never allow them to be destroyed. And so they just, well, it's in God's hands. And mm-hmm. guess what happened? The Muslims conquered them. I mean, that, that's what happened. I mean, literally tore the city down. You know, it was absolutely horrible. And some of those old, old Gregorian chants that you hear, you know, the oh, yeah, oh, yeah. what they're doing is they're mourning the fall of Constantinople because they can't believe that it happened. So Jesus is saying, just because you have faith in me doesn't mean you get to be an idiot. Use your mind, be shrewd, specifically, develop a strategy. So Jesus in another section says, be as as shrewd as a snake and as innocent as a dove. Mm-hmm. So we don't get to compromise our integrity, but what we, we need to value, what we need to value in people who don't know Jesus is they're crafty. And as Christians, we have to have strategy. We have to be crafty. We have to figure out a way to uh, do the things that we need to do in a way that both benefits our life and honors God. And so what we're learning here is, is okay, this guy, this guy understood, man, he's gonna have to use his brain and he's gonna have to develop a strategy to take care of himself. We need to do the same things. For eternity, all of us need to figure out what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What is the strategy? Here it is. Humble yourself, repent of your sins, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And some people can't do that and mm-hmm. won't do that, but, but we need to do that. So um, I believe that the manager is dishonest. Um, you know, Jesus, I think is pointing out one area in this guy's life that's right. Remember a broken clock is right twice a day. So he's not saying that everything about this guy's life was right. Everything about this guy's life is awesome. He's not telling us to emulate all of his character. He's simply stating sometimes non-believers are wiser and more shrewd and crafty than Christians. And so um, we can't as Christians let the world outthink us. We can't. 
we have to think, we have to strategize, we we have to be smart. And so that's the principle there. And then he's going to get into some teaching uh, specifically about money and choosing, you know, who mm-hmm. your master is. Can you talk really quickly about that? Like when you say we have to make sure that the world is not outthinking us, outsmarting us, whatever. Do you have an example or what do you mean by that a little bit more specifically? Yeah. So for, you know, for a thousand years, Christians were the smartest. We were the philosophers. We were the cutting edge, the great thinkers. And ultimately, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but universities, anybody who's going to school, that was a Christian's idea. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of university, of studying, um, you know, this all comes from Christian thought and practice. And it is churches, most of these places, right, started out as seminaries, Harvard, Yale, yep. these amazing schools, Oxford. These were places of study to know and connect with God. And ultimately what happened is Christians quit thinking and unfortunately the world didn't stop thinking. Mm-hmm. And so we need to, to re-engage in these ideas. We need to think in these you know, ideas. The apostle Paul says that as Christians, we're to take every thought captive and a lot of times people use that as a way of making Christ, you know, in control of all your thoughts. That's not what Paul means. What Paul means is every idea that's out there, every philosophy, we have to make it submit to Christ because ultimately Christ is the wisdom of God. And so we need to not be intimidated by that. So we have to be strategic um, as a church. Uh, you know, there's a reason that you know, we're out here in the middle of nowhere with the donkeys and the warehouses because we don't want to go into debt. I've seen a lot of churches in our own town get in way over their heads financially because they didn't think, they didn't strategize, you know, they got stupid and now they're in trouble. And mm-hmm. so we've had to do that. Why are we doing multi-site? Because it's much more inexpensive way to grow the church, to teach people about Jesus, then can then keep building a bigger and bigger and bigger building, which is what churches have historically done. Right. Um, you know, it, it requires millions and millions of dollars, whereas a satellite campus requires only, you know, thousands of dollars. So it's far, it's a far more frugal way mm-hmm. of accomplishing the mission. And at Sandals, you know, we have to be the smartest. We have to be the sharpest in every decision that we make because we've made bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I had to look at that as the leader and say, okay, we can't do that again. And so the same thing in your, you know, in your house, in your family, um, you have to, you have to lead wisely. And so we all have to do that. As a single person, you have to do that. As a married person, as the leader of the church, we have to be stewards of what God has called us to do. And, um, you know, that's important. And so if you look at it from that story, right, the master is firing the steward because he wasn't a good steward. He wasn't managing the resources of the master well. Okay, so it sounds almost like, um, as you've talked about a little bit with some of the other parables, that you would advise us not to get caught up and hung up on who's the master, who's the yeah. the who's and who's, but really just stay focused on the principle as we're trying to unpack this story in our groups. Yeah, so so here's where you get into danger is you try to pull out multiple um, points in the story. Okay. You know, and, and that's when you get really, really wonky in your theology and your teaching. And so, you know, Jesus is talking to, once again, to rich Pharisees, you know, he's talking to people and, and I think he's warning them. And he's saying, look, man, the, the, right, the principle, the master is going to call all of you into account for how you managed his wealth. The Pharisees have not managed God's wealth good. They okay, haven't. Right. And so they're going to be fired. They're going to be removed. Um, but Jesus acknowledges, you know, they're not, they're not complete idiots. They do have a strategy in mind and, 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 they're, and they're trying to figure it out. And so as Christians, we need to also, we need to act righteously. We need to act honestly, but we need to act shrewdly. We need to be very, very careful. So that's why Jesus says, be as shrewd as a serpent. I mean, if you think about a snake, a snake is, is very, very vulnerable. You know, it has one weapon, its mouth. It has to strike and it has to be very, very careful because it's, 
if it turns into a wrestling match, right, Snake's done. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we, we have we have to be very very careful. And and uh, someone's going to write in and talk about pythons. Well, th- those weren't there in Jesus' day, right? They're vipers and they strike. So. He's not talking about anacondas who wrap us up and slow down, us. slow down, you snake geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> speak, speak. Yeah, I was going to say, my wife also says I have one weapon. It's my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, speaking of the, mo- the moral of the story here, uh, or like the one point, Jesus in verse nine, full on goes, Here's the lesson use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. So kind of a question out of this, does this passage imply that having wealth is bad or that it's more spiritual to have less wealth? Right. No, no, and no. So this passage means that we are to use, we are to be strategic in the way that we use our wealth. Use your wealth to build relationships. So 2000 years ago, right? There's no such thing as social security. There's no such thing as, you know, financial help. I mean, all of those ideas are modern ideas. When you ran out of your money, you were homeless, you were going to die and starve. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, if you're a woman, you could maybe sell yourself as a slave or become a prostitute. You know, as an older man like this guy, your options are very, very limited. So always be using your money. Uh, if you're a business person, you know, don't burn bridges. Don't burn bridges. I see people that do this all the time. You don't burn bridges because you never know when you might have to walk back across that bridge. Mm-hmm. So always t- treat people with love and respect and try to be rich relationally. And that's what I would say about people oh, is you know, mm-hmm. in, in my own life, you know, I am not a wealthy person. Uh, I, I'm not rich, but I am rich in relationships. I know people, um, you know, I've been good to people and people are good to me. And so I can lean on those relationships when I need something because I'm very, very wealthy when it comes to friendships. And Jesus is saying, You've got to do this. Now, ultimately, I think that the last sentence was, what did what did he say? He said, be rich. Uh, then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Right. So, you know, again, so we need to be strategic here about with eternity in mind. We need to use our money in such a way that it reflects our eternal destination. What are we fixating and focusing our money on now? The here and now, you know, becoming the wealthy. And, and this is what's so sad, right, about people who gain the whole world. You know, the richest person in the world in the end has nothing because you don't get to keep it. And so the Christian principle is, is invest in eternity, invest in eternity. So every time Tammy and I, you know, we write our tithe check to the church, every time we support a missionary, every time I help somebody who's needy or poor, you know, right? God is, Jesus promises that he's going to bless that investment a hundredfold. Think about that, a hundred percent return on everything that I do. And that money is safe and secure. And those things go with me to eternity. My investments in the stock market don't, my investments in, in property doesn't, my, my, the money in my uh, bank account, none of that goes with me. But the investments that I've made for all eternity, those things do go with me. And so God doesn't you know, guarantee a blessing in this life, but he guarantees a blessing in eternal life. So use your wealth, you know, back to the shrewd manager, use your wealth and operate your money with eternity in mind. This guy figured out life is going to change. My position and status has changed. I need to invest in such a way that I'm taken care of. As Christians, we need to always remember that. You know, money on this earth won't last forever. We're going to spend, you know, eternity with God, which you can't even measure the the brief amount of time we are here on earth in comparison to that. So live your life with eternity in mind. Spend your money with eternity in mind because that's what lasts. And there's gonna be a lot of people that are very disappointed on the day of judgment because so much of what they did burned. And uh, Paul talks about that in Corinthians, that only 
you know, the gifts of gold and silver, only those things last, but the gifts of straw, hay and wood, right? They all burned. And so it, it, it doesn't last. Mm-hmm. And so spend your money with eternity in mind. And so this guy, right, developed a strategy to figure out how to prepare for the next life. And we as Christians need to prepare for the next life. Man, this makes me think of the the couple in our church who, you know, like recently sold their larger house and is downsized yeah. because as over the couple of last years, as God's really grabbed their heart with missions and all those other things, they want to be intentionally investing. Yeah, in I mean, God's you kingdom. know, it's a family in our church, you know, that, that are, are millionaires. You know, they've made more money than all three of us will ever see in our lifetime. But they've realized, man, that's not what life is about. And so they're downsizing, you know, changing up their ministry. And specifically, you know, many of you are struggling to tithe 10% of your income. These people feel led by God to tithe 90%. So to completely reverse it, to live off 10% of their money and to give 90% of their money to furthering the gospel and seeing people saved all over the world for Jesus. So when you think about that, right, they've they've basically said no to themselves on earth and they are going to be blessed incredibly totally. in heaven. And um, you know, and they're 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 not a poor family, right? They're mm-hmm. they're a very, very wealthy family. And certainly if you're poor, don't do that because your first priority as a Christian is not to be a burden to the church. So mm-hmm. get a job, take care of yourself. And so this is why, right, we don't we don't all quit our jobs, we don't all, you know, sell all of our possessions and pull it into a group because then ultimately someone's gonna be needy. Someone has to work. So your first responsibility is to take care of yourself so that you can be generous to those in the church who are temporarily in need. And so here's the difference between, you know, the church's point of view about poverty and say uh, the US government. The US government's position on helping people perpetuates poverty. In the church, we want to help people temporarily so that they can get out of poverty. Right. And, um, and that means they've got to work. That means they've got to be stewards. That means, you know, they've got to deal with addictions. They, you know, you know, if you're homeless, you can't have 87 dogs, right? Things yeah. like that. We have to help them work through those issues so that they can come out of poverty. And we want to help them do that. Mm-hmm. Cool. So actually moving right into verse 10, I think Jesus kind of keeps talking about this exact point. He says, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. So is Jesus making a warning or a promise here? Does God reward his followers financially if they're wise with their money? Well, let's go back. So read the first sentence again. Yeah. If you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. Right. So there's the positive side. Now I'll say the negative side. The negative side was what? If you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater okay. responsibilities. So go back to the parable of the dishonest manager. He was dishonest a little bit right at the beginning and the master figures it out. And then what is he? He's incredibly dishonest with big things. And so I think Jesus is simply making an offer observation is you can't outrun your character. And so this is what a lot of people think is, is well, when I get money, I'll be generous. Mm-hmm. If you're not generous when you're poor, you won't be generous when you're wealthy. And that's just the reality. And when you look at, you know, um, uh, wealthy people, they're not, they're not all that generous. You know, they're, they're just not. Um, that's some of the, the news that's coming out about Donald Trump. Um, you know, his generosity is towards charity is really, really lacking. And, and why is that? Because, um, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, all the Trump lovers, I'm not trying to slam him. It's just, it's just a reality. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the wealthiest people in our country are not the most generous. It's, yeah, it's, it's the people with a lot less because it's not an issue of surplus. It's an issue of character. Mm-hmm. You know, so Tammy and I, when we first got married, we had no money. We started tithing right then and there. And those dollars were very, very painful. 
Uh, so now the checks that we write to the church are much bigger, but they're, it's, it's the same principle. So you have to decide, am I going to be faithful to God? Am I going to put God first? And when you make that decision, you're, you're going to be that, but you can't lie to yourself. I mean, the vision of church, be real with yourself. You're not going to be more generous when you have more mm-hmm. because generosity is a character issue. It's not based upon your ability to give. It's based upon what's in your heart. And so, um, you know, I, I think about when we've built these buildings, some of the most generous people in our church, I, I it literally brought me to tears, um, you know, gave all they had, the parable of the widow, right? She put in all she had, her last two pennies. And Jesus says, that's the biggest gift of all. So, mm-hmm. um, so I would say this though, I think what Jesus is saying is, is if you want God to bless you with more, be faithful with a little that you have. So, Okay, so let's look at verse 13. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Right, and here's the principle, and we need to go back to the shrewd manager, because that's right within the context. And so did, did the shrewd manager, did he ever serve his master? No, he served himself. And so that's the issue. The issue is not, do I serve God or do I serve money? The issue really is this, do I serve God or do I serve myself? Because money is just another, another way for saying you. Because, right, the possession of money, the desire for money is the, is the desire to, um, you know, gain more things for yourself. Totally, yeah. And so, and so that's the battle. And so, you know, the shrewd manager, right? He's dishonest all the way through. He's never about the master. And so that's true for you as a believer. You are either focused on money or you're focused on God. And if you're focused on God, that's good. And if you're focused on money, you're focused on yourself. And so, and just please pay attention. I mean, study after study, statistic after statistic is showing how miserable Americans are. We're more wealthy than we've ever been. We have more more pleasure than we've ever had. I, You know, this whole idea, right? You know, politics, that, that everything is terrible. Everything's getting worse. It's a lie. It's all a lie. Things have never been this good. Right. And, and in all of human history, things have never been this good. That That's just the reality. And no one wants to hear that, but it's the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, things have never been, you know, this is the least racist at any time in history. I mean, think things are great and people are miserable. Why? Because we've bought into this lie that money makes you happy and things make you happy. And the reality is they don't, they make you miserable. And, you know, so many of us as Christians, again, we're buying into the world's, you know, crap that it's going to make you happy and it doesn't, it makes you miserable. And so these millennials that are coming up are the most miserable generation that's ever been surveyed and Mm -hmm. they have everything. Mm -hmm. Their whole life is about self-entertainment. Their whole life is about self-gratification. You know, their whole life is about self-indulgement. And what? And guess what? They're miserable. You know, they have the things that previous generations dreamed about. Right. It, everything's accessible to them. And yet the buzz is worn off and, 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 they're, and they're miserable. So, so what was your question specifically? Um, I'm actually going to switch the question, kind of go back to one before. So as we're talking about all this and like what to do with wealth, would you say then that it's, you know, more spiritual to try to have less wealth or... Yeah, no. So okay. we don't believe at Sandals Church in a, in, a, in, a, in a gospel of poverty or a spirit of poverty. God doesn't want you to be poor. And again, why? Because if you're poor, you can't help others. 
So the question is, why do you wanna be wealthy and why do you wanna be rich? What is the purpose? What is driving you to earn wealth? So for example, the couple in our church that wants to give away 90%, mm-hmm. the purpose of earning wealth is to do good. Mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I think that's admirable and that's beautiful. And I'm not saying everybody needs to give 90%, but everybody better be given 10%. I mean, don't even talk to me about a spirit of generosity if you can't get to the place where you can tithe. I mean, right? It, it, you're... you're I mean, I, I don't want to be too harsh, but you're lying to yourself and to me if you can't get to the tithe. And, and certainly there are, you know, people are in financial positions and have gotten themselves in, in financial trouble. And, and, and let me just say this, you know, the number one reason Tammy and I say no to things is because we don't want to say no to God. So I don't ever want to put myself in a financial position where I can't give to God. That's the number one thing is Tammy and I want to be generous to God, generous to to what he's doing because we love him and care for him. But no, poor people are not more holy than wealthy people because money is not inherently evil. The love of money is evil. Mm -hmm. You know, so so for example, if I win the lottery tomorrow, which would be strange because I didn't buy a lottery ticket, but (laughs) let's just say hypothetically that happened. I'm not more holy or less holy tomorrow when I win that money. Now, what does that money do to me? What do I do with that money? The challenges are different. Right, the challenges have become different. And so for me, I have become, my role as a steward is now greater. You know, am I I about building my own wealth, building my own portfolio, or am I about, you know, building God's wealth, his kingdom? Um, You know, what what are my concerns? And so if my concerns are not, you know, the church, not his mission, not... Uh, you know, building the kingdom, then that's a problem. So, so listen, if this conversation is stressing you out and the t- because the topic of money is just a hard one for you, one of the things that's just so great about our, ch- our church family is that we have really incredible people who are not just generous with their finances, but with their time. And uh, with that, we've got really incredible support groups and, you know, even financial counseling available from other folks who have climbed out, some of them under hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and slowly moved toward a place of generosity. So listen, if you are wanting to move toward generosity, but you just feel like your circumstances are crazy, man, just reach out to us when you're here on the weekends. Um, You can sign up for some of our uh, support groups or classes for financial training and counseling, and we would love to come alongside you there. So now Jesus kind of shifts subjects here um, with verse 16 and 17 and says, until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the messages of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is eager to get in. But that doesn't mean that the law has lost its force. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. Um, So many of us know the 10 commandments. We know that that's part of the law, but what is the law of Moses and how should we as Christians process that? Yeah, so basically when you, when you read the law of Moses here, you know, he's talking about, you know, the Torah, the writings. Uh, uh, you know, the Torah the, is first, first five, books. five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Got it. Then what's considered the writings, so the poetry, Psalms, um, you know, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms, stuff like that. And then the prophets, so the, the major prophets and then the minor prophets. Um, so what, what Jesus is saying is he's, he's not coming to say none of that's null and void. Uh, what he's coming to do is is interpret that for us specifically um, to uh, help us to uh, to understand in its meaning, and he's not doing away with it. And so that's what people say. Well, I'm not under the law, and so what I would say is, okay, well, which of the Ten Commandments do you get to not do? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Christians as Christians, we struggle with this. And so, what I would say is the the way. Here's the principle. You know, the, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, let me tell you how to be obedient to everything that Moses said, everything the prophet said, right? He tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. When we do these two things, 
we are being obedient to everything that the law teaches. So when you look at the 10 commandments, right? Five are directed towards how we relate to God. Five are directed towards how we relate to other. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself, God and others. And that's what our faith must do is, is it must affect the way that we treat others. And so the accusation here is that Jesus is changing. He's saying something different and he's not. He's fulfilling everything that the, that the Old Testament said. And so, you know, this is the issue. And, and you know, Luke is probably putting in this in here because the accusation that Christians are facing is that they're rejecting the law of Moses, that they're creating a new religion. And what Luke is telling us, you know, from the words of Jesus is no, you know, Jesus is Jewish. All the 12 disciples are Jewish. And initially all believers were Jewish, but over time, you know, more Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people in the world became Christians. And so the question is, is this something new? And it's no, this has always been God's plan. Jesus is not deviating in any way from what the Old Testament speaks about. He's just clarifying it for us and he is helping us to interpret it through him. And so, you know, sometimes in the Old Testament there are things that are really, really harsh and things that, you know, just don't seem like Jesus. We have to interpret the Old Testament through the person and character of Jesus. So... So hold really quick though. There's there's parts of the Old Testament law that as Christians we don't necessarily follow anymore. We're like you know stuff about even tattoos or yeah. the types of fish that we can eat or right. you know like ladies like have to go to the desert. desert. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. What what about that? No, no, ladies still have to go to the desert. No, oh, okay. I'm <laughs> We don't. Ladies. Well, we just live in one. Yeah. So well, I have three. Here. I have three women in in my household, and from time to time, I wish that that was still a commandment. So, um, no, I love my wife and daughters. Appreciate them. Uh, no. So, so here's the issue: is right. This is going to be settled when we get to Acts 15. Uh, Stephanie's scowling at me. Uh, <laughs> I forgive you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for giving grace. Um, in Acts 15, the question is going to be resolved is what what does a person need to do when they convert to Christianity? Do they have to become Jewish? And so we'll get to that in, in Acts 15 when the council meets, uh, James brings together the council and they're going to decide what must they do. And so, you know, they're going to talk about a couple of things and we'll get that get to that in, in Acts 15. And if you you can read that on your own and it's exactly what the council decides, but okay. it's very, very limited. I mean, I, I think it's four or three things. Yeah, we've talked about that a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, don't eat, things, you know, sacrifice to idols, stay away from sexual immorality. Um, I can't remember what the other the other two are. Often. One was like strangling. Yeah, don't yeah. strangle things, right? Animal cruelty, right. Don't, don't be bizarre. So a lot of it has to do with like these bizarre cultic practices. Stay away from that stuff because it's just creepy. But it says that, that Christians ultimately will learn the principles of the law in the synagogue each week. So the idea was they're going to learn the law of Moses at some time. And so as Christians, you know, this is where we've most, the vast majority of Christians have landed. We have to still live out the morality of the Old Testament, but we don't have to live out the specific cultural norms. Okay. And so, um, you know, we don't have to become a Jew. You, that, that is not what God is calling us to do. We don't have to become Jewish. If, you're, if you are a Jew and you become a Christian, I would encourage you to stay Jewish because I think that's one of the great heartbreaks of, of ultimately of Christianity is Jews felt like they, you know, they didn't stay Jews. They became Christian. They became Gentiles. And I think hmm. that's tragic. And that's a conversation for another cool. time because you need to stay Jewish and you mm-hmm. need to stay in your Jewish culture um, to reach right God's people. Um, but for those who are Gentiles, we don't need to become Jewish. And, and that is very, very clear. So, okay. So when I'm looking at some of these laws and rules that are in the old Testament, 
I, what you're saying is, say, is, the, is this spe- speaking to something morally or is this speaking to like a cultural kind of issue? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you know, it, yeah, I mean, right. I can't kill people. And that's, and you see that, you see that in the, in the New Testament, right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, you, you see, you see those principles. And I think the apostle Paul is, is pretty clear when you, when we, you know, if, if this debrief goes long enough, we get into the epistles, he's going to show us specifically the things that he focuses on. And again, the big ones are going to be sexual immorality and worshiping idols. Those are going to be the big ones. And other ones is how we treat each other, you know, being loving and kind to each other, serving each other, how we relate with one another, um, you know, which can all be summarized in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, unless of course you're tweaked, then that law becomes <laughs> difficult uh, to put into practice, right? So, Got it. Okay, so we kind of have this random verse 18 here where Jesus goes, for example, a man who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, and anyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So Jesus is saying, for example, but does he actually mean this? Like if yes. I was divorced? So what he's doing, so remember, remember who his enemies are. His enemies are Jewish lawyers and Jewish Pharisees. So Jewish clergy. Okay. And th- what they're doing is they're accusing him of violating the law constantly. So every time he heals somebody on the Sabbath, right, you're, you're breaking the law. You're breaking the law. You can't do these things. And they're trying to point out these areas where, you know, he's wrong. And so he just said, look, man, I'm, I'm not changing anything what the law says. He'll ultimately says, you guys don't understand the law. And I think he throws this in their face because what they would do is they would grant each other the permission to divorce. And what he's saying is he's it. throwing it in their faces. He's saying, you think, you think that I'm soft on the law? He's like, you guys are softer on the law. And so he specifically gets into this is that Moses granted uh, the permission for divorce, he says, because of the hardness of your hearts. And so that law is actually in there because they're evil. It's not pointing to something that's righteous. Divorce is evil. It's ugly. It's awful. And he's saying, you guys get divorced. And so he's probably speaking in this instance to Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees who had dumped their old wives for new hot young ones. And he's saying, look at you. You, 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 you think you, think you, you, know, you love God's law? You have violated this. And so um, it's important you know, here. So in the gospel of Matthew, um, Matthew softens the teaching of Jesus. He says that you, know, that you can't get divorced except in the, in the area of infidelity, which is, the, we get the word unfaithfulness. Mm-hmm. And so that specifically means sexual unfaithfulness, and it means um, it can mean other areas of unfaithfulness. It doesn't just have to mean you know you cheated. But um, let me just say this: and if you're divorced, I love you, and I'm praying for you, and you're not excluded from the kingdom of God, you're not kicked out of the church. But we need to all understand this: divorce is evil. Mm-hmm. It is. Sometimes it's a necessary evil, right? You mm-hmm. have to get divorced. You're in a you're in a position of abuse. You're in a I mean right. But it's it it's you're choosing divorce because it is the lesser of evils. But it is not a good thing. It, it it's an ugly thing, and it's something that we need to deal with. And the Bible says God hates divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hebrews says, you know, uh, Hebrews thirteen says that God will judge those who defile defile the marriage bed. Jesus says, "What God has joined together, let no man tear apart." This is a serious, serious thing. And so, um, this is what I would say: is you know. If you're divorced, there's nothing you can do to fix that. You know, repent of that, ask God to forgive you. And the Bible says that he will, right? He forgives us of our sins. If you are married, do whatever the heck you have to do to try to make it work out. And if you feel like you've you've exhausted that and it can't work out, come talk to the church, come talk to us. I, I, I would in no way ever divorce Tammy under any circumstances unless I had, 
you know, the other pastor's uh, blessing at this church. Mm-hmm. I, I just wouldn't do it because um, I know that I am, I am prone to selfishness. I'm prone to seeing things from only my perspective and my sinfulness can skew um, what I see as righteous and what I see as good. And so I need to have non-involved parties who love me and who love the Lord to speak into my life. And, and the problem is, right, we don't get that at, at, as the church anymore. So like in the Catholic church, the, right, they say you can go get divorced in the courts, but they, they don't acknowledge that. Hmm. You have to go to the church to get your marriage annulled because they see they see marriage as something biblical. They see that something, it is nothing governmental. And I, I think it's unfortunate that we've asked, you know, America to get involved in marriage because now look what's happened, right? Right. We asked them to, you know, make a statement on what marriage is. We got the government involved. Now the government has changed the definition of marriage, which is problematic because the church never should have had the government involved in what it is in the first place. Sure. For us as Christians, marriage is a spiritual union. It's a spirit, it's a, it's a worship service where before God, before our church and our, our, our family and friends, we are declaring the two are becoming one flesh. And um, so if you're divorced, you know, don't, I hope you don't crash your car while you're listening to this. We love you. God loves you. Absolutely. But listen, it's evil. We all have evil in our lives. Just because I'm married doesn't mean I'm any less evil than you are. We all have evil in our lives. We all have sin in our lives and we need to repent of this and we need to ask for forgiveness. And, and the good news is First John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all, listen to this word, wickedness in our lives if we confess our sins to him. And so, man, do that. And, 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 and this weekend in church, cry, weep, and praise Jesus because totally. he has, his blood has covered your sin. And so, right, feel bad for a minute and then just feel in love with Jesus because we all need to be forgiven by him. But Jesus is throwing this in the face of his religious accusers, I believe here. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so he's going to move on now and tell the story of the par- or a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which just real quick, there's a rich man who has everything that he ever wanted, super blessed in his life. There's a poor man named Lazarus laying outside, suffering, sick, hurting. Then Jesus tells the story of what happens when they both die. Um, so first of all, is this a parable or is it a real story? Because it knows that yeah, Lazarus like has Bible a name. Yeah, says parable. Yeah, right. it says parable, but then I don't know why you would name. Yeah, so, so here's, here's why it's confusing. So the, certainly it, it seems to be a parable. What makes this parable unusual from any other parable in the Bible is Jesus uses a real name. Is this his buddy Lazarus that he raised from the yeah, dead? Yeah, no, it's okay. not his buddy Lazarus. So um, yeah, so he, the, he, he, and we'll talk about why he used the name Lazarus. Well, I'll just throw it out now so I don't forget, but uh, the name Lazarus means uh, blessed by God. So... Uh, or helped by God, excuse me. God has helped. God has helped is is what it means. And so the name fits out perfectly because ultimately God helps Lazarus uh, in the story. But, you know, Jesus, when he shares a story, he uses extremes to make a point, right? Unless you hate your mother and brother. He's trying to to rattle us so that he can move us. And so in the ancient world, the understanding is those who are rich are blessed by God. They're going to be blessed by God now, and they're going to be blessed by God in eternity. And so it, it, it gave rise to this sense of self-righteousness. Well, God, I, I'm such a good person that God has blessed me. And so uh, poor people would feel extremely intimidated because they would say, oh, this guy's, this guy's loved by God. And then you know, conversely, the poor person says, oh, I must've done something wrong. God hates me, I'm in judgment. And so what Jesus is doing, he's saying, that, look, that's not the way God works. God actually loves the poor. Um, and it's not that he doesn't hate the rich. It's just really, really difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven because the truth is 
rich people don't need God on this earth like poor people need God on this earth. So mm. poor people realize, I mean, they need God every day. They need God for bread every day. Right. Whereas a wealthy person, they can exist on their own without God. They can make everything happen. They can do all of those things. They can't save themselves, but they're used to doing everything on their own. And that's why Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to enter to the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And uh, when he said that, the disciples were like, oh my gosh, who then can be saved? Because the thinking is, if rich people who are good people can't get into heaven, then how am I the lowly fisherman? How am I gonna get into heaven? And so um, so this is what I would say. This is a parable. Um, okay. uh, I, I don't believe that this is a real story. Uh, I think it's a parable and I think it will cause much more ease as we navigate it. Um, you know, thinking of this as a made up story. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's a made up story to prove a very real point. So mm-hmm. Jesus does this to prove a real point. So what, it, what, what you shouldn't do is say, oh, well, I, I don't need to be concerned by this story. You should be very concerned because this story ultimately could be your story. He's telling the story for a reason. Yeah. Okay. So towards the end of the, well, I guess it's kind of the middle of the story, verses 22 through 23, um, Jesus goes, finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried and his soul went to the place of the dead. So is Jesus talking about heaven and hell here? Yeah, so let's let's back up. So again, he's going on with the illustration. The rich man is buried, so he's honored in life. The poor man is not buried. Oh, okay. So he, he's right. He, he's probably left in the field or, or thrown into a ditch. Um, probably would have been thrown into Gehenna. Oh, interesting. So Gehenna is the place. It's the local dump of Jerusalem, which is the word that Jesus uses for hell. So right, everyone's going to know. Oh, the the poor the, the 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 sick guy was be picked up by like wh- whoever's job it was to. Yeah. pick up dead people in the city and they're going to throw them into Gehenna. But what's amazing is that's not what happens in the story is the one who would have thought was going to go to hell, Gehenna, actually is carried by angels. So he's lifted up um, and, and the imagery is powerful, right? His body, because they're going to think his body's not taken care of, his body's not loved, but it's lifted up by angels taken to the very bosom of Abraham. And so, you know, this is an unusual illustration. Um, but what I think it is, it's a contemporary understanding of the fact that, you know, um, Abraham represents a type of heaven, an example of heaven. And so for us as Christians, this is problematic because we think of St. Peter um, as the person who would be sitting in this role. But yeah, he Jesus, hanging out at the pearly Jesus gates. Could, yeah, Jesus I've couldn't that, have told I've seen that, that story. In the Sunday newspaper. Yeah, he couldn't have told that story um, then because they wouldn't have understood that. They, they don't, right? The people sitting around him don't understand the role of Peter yet, but they would have oh, understood. He's just a regular dude. Yeah. He's like, I'm getting a cloud to float on yeah. someday. Yeah. Some pearly gates are. And what's a saint? So, you know, Abraham is somebody who is exonerated and someone who is highly, highly revered uh, in their culture. And so um, he uses this concept of, you know, kind of the great grandfather of our people. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the original Jew. Um, so... You know, he's being, he's being, he's being carried into his arms. And so it's a picture of, so, so is it heaven and is it hell? Yes and no. What it is, is Hmm. it is the theological understanding and the teaching of Jesus that when you die, you will go to one of two places. There are two places that you can go. And so whether Jesus specifically means, you know, heaven uh, for eternity and hell for eternity here, I think is irrelevant um, because, you know, he hasn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't paid the penalty for our sins yet, right? That all changes post-resurrection. So this is pre-resurrection. And so maybe this is a picture of what death looked like before the resurrection of Christ. Remember 
Uh, Peter says that he ascended unto hell and preached to the spirits who were in prison, preached the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what Jesus is saying is, he's what he's doing is he's saying there is there is an afterlife, a very very real afterlife. When you die, that is not it. So whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, you are going to one of two places. Life is not over, and you need to understand that Jesus is teaching that when you die, life is not over. Okay, so um, while this rich guy is is in hell or whatever here, he is crying out. In verse 25, Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is being here comforted and you are in anguish. Yeah, so does someone, like, why is the rich man in hell? And does that mean that someone, like, Lazarus got to go to heaven just because he was poor? Was yeah, right. And so, so the reality is we don't know. This is a fictitious story that Jesus is teaching. Um, he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, right? I mean, he's not teaching everything about theology. I mean, the, the only reason the, the, the poor man is going to go to heaven is because of his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, ultimately, according to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just trying to flip culture up, up on its head and say, you don't know, you think you know what's going to happen because you're wealthy or because you're poor. But what he's saying is, I'm here to mix it all up and you don't know anything about what the next life is going to look like. And so remember, it's the upside down kingdom where the first are last and the last shall be first. And so it's just this completely different thing. And he's really, really trying to mess with their minds. So I don't know if if I answered that specifically enough. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so the rest of what's going on here in the story, basically the rich man kind of shouts out, and he, he's trying to get help, right? He says, please, Father Abraham, send somebody to my father's house for I have five brothers and want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. And Abraham says, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read about what they want. The rich man replies, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And then to close the chapter, Abraham says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. This sounds like Jesus is just foreshadowing. Yeah, so he goes from storytelling to predicting the future. And so there's a shift here. Um, you know, So this fictitious story ends with something that specifically is going to happen. And so um, what he's trying to say here is, right, Every single human being is marching towards an eternal destiny. And so that's the other thing that we need to understand here is, uh, you know, Jesus's version of hell is that it's eternal and it does not end. And so you will live forever with God or you will live forever apart from God. And so the the, the bosom of Abraham, right? And, and, and it almost, I mean, so you say the bosom of Abraham, what does that mean? It means close intimacy. So this, this man who was excluded in his whole life, never cared for, never loved, is the closest to God's heart. And the person who experienced all this love and, and all this, you know, the, all the blessings of life, right? He is as far apart. And there's this chasm that separates them, this, this, this impassable chasm. And so if you don't know what a chasm is, it's like the Grand Canyon is a, a great chasm. Yeah. And, and what it means is there's no way that you can get from one side to the other. Your, your, your position is your position. The it's, end of Force Awakens. Yeah. I was about to say that big earthquake at the end there. Yeah. Kylo Ren and Ray. Right, right. So... A force chasm. And so what what we need to do is, and again, this is why we have to share the gospel with our friends. This is why we have to share the gospel to ourselves. We have to preach it to ourselves. We have to be very, very serious about what we do at church because, you know, we live in a world now, here's what's bizarre about about modern life is we, we seem incapable of punishing anyone for the decisions they make. Hmm. 
You know, like I was reading in the paper about a, a couple of years ago. Uh, remember that guy went to that summer camp up in Finland and he had an AK-47 oh, yeah. or whatever and he killed like oh, yeah. 75 kids, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like murder, I, it was inc- incredible. Horrible. Murdered all this, he's a Nazi, you know, some crazy Ugh. dude. Well, I, I found out what happened to him. So that, that country doesn't have the death penalty, right? And people are like, oh, he, he has a three bedroom apartment in prison with like TV, VCR movies and all this stuff. And he, he's complaining that it's, it's inhumane because he's not allowed to have interaction with other human beings. And the reason they don't want him to have interaction is because he's crazy and he will, you know, preach the gospel, so to speak, of Nazism to the yeah. other inmates, and they don't want him interacting with anybody. But he is suing in court again, and it's just like, why is this guy even alive? I mean, it's just crazy to me that in our world, it's immoral now to punish people for their ridiculous crimes. It, it blows my mind. And so we have a hard time now with a God who punishes people for their crimes. And 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 I it just I just don't understand this. And again, so the narrative in this under, the underlying narrative in this whole thing is make sure that your values are aligned with God's values and not the world's values. So here's here's where the world right now disagrees with God. The world considers it immoral to punish people for their sins. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about all the movies now, right? We don't even have evil characters in movies anymore. There's always a backstory. Yeah, they're 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 misunderstood. You know, they used to just be evil, right? Nobody cared why the Wicked Witch of the West was evil. She just was. Now there's a backstory, <laughs> a story, and she yeah. sings, and she has a Broadway play, right? And yeah. you She's know, just totally she was misunderstood, and so you know, we have to have all of this sympathy now for these people that, right? Historically, it's just like, no, nah, you're good, you're bad, and and we move on, and we can deal with that. And now, you know, we can't deal with that, and we we judge God as immoral because he will hold people accountable for their choices. And so this rich guy, he didn't care at all about Lazarus. Lazarus is clearly suffering. Clearly suffering and part of his issue and part of his sickness was nobody cared for him. Mm -hmm. So think about the story of the good Samaritan, right? The Samaritan finds this guy beat up, you know, heals his wounds, puts oil on his head and ministers to him. Man, Lazarus sees this guy every day. I mean, the rich guy, excuse me, sees Lazarus every day. He knows exactly who he is. He has a relationship with him. And that's why in the story, he calls out to him and says, man, send Lazarus come back to, to serve me. He still doesn't get it. He's not repentant. He doesn't understand that he blew it. Um, and, and so he's suffering because of the choices that he made in his life. And mm-hmm. so Jesus, here's the gospel of Jesus. You will be held accountable for the choices that you make in life, unless you repent of your sins and you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his blood will cover your sins. Otherwise, you're going to stand before God and be held accountable for everything you did. And here's the thing that's scary. The selfishness of your heart will be revealed, of my heart will be revealed on the day of judgment. And praise God for Jesus, because the truth is that the the moral difference between me and this rich man is much slimmer than I would like it to be. Oh, man. Because I am about myself, about my kids. You know, people say things like this. Well, if God's so loving, why is there, why is there famine? Why, why is there starvation? Well, that's not God's issue. That's a selfishness issue among human beings. Mm-hmm. We don't share. We don't. You know, why do we pay taxes? Because people don't share. Mm-hmm. The government puts a gun to you and says, right, you're going to pay these taxes so we can, because people don't do it. And, th- and that's the thing is that that's the human heart. You know, greed is something that's inherent to a sinful heart. And so we just have to be very, very careful here. And so, so here's the meaning of the story. All of Luke 16, there is an afterlife. Be ready. Be mm-hmm. ready. Okay. The shrewd manager is trying to prepare for a change of life. You and I need to prepare for a change of life. And oh, by the way, life is going to be very different. It's going to be upside down. Rich people may be in hell and poor people may be in heaven. 
So, so, so you better figure out how to navigate the change from this life to the next life. And so, you know, just like a baby, you know, in a mother's womb, life is very, very different in the womb from when the baby comes out outside of the womb. It's, it's, it's incredibly different. So too will be physical life from eternal life. So Jesus is the only one who knows what the next life looks like. Mm -hmm. So he's telling us, you need to be ready. So again, how do I ensure that I am in the bosom of Abraham and not in hell, okay? And not in the place of torment and judgment. The only way that you can guarantee that is by repenting of your sins and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, every human being will stand before the throne of Jesus and Jesus can do what he wants. He can do what he wants. He has earned the right to forgive who he forgives and to condemn who he condemns. He has earned that right and he has authority. The only guarantee I have of my salvation is whoever believes in him, he would give them the right to become children of God. And so I know that. I have security in, I know that I've repented and I know in whom I've trusted and I've trusted in Jesus. And so I don't have to be afraid of that day where John says, right, perfect love casts out all fear. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be afraid of the day of judgment because the love of Christ will protect me from, from his wrath on that day. So, so if you're listening to this and you're in small group, just know we may live in a world that can't judge people. God does not have that problem. He can judge and he can judge righteously and he will judge forever, forever. So, and that is from Genesis to Revelation, God will hold us accountable for the lives we live. And you may not like it, but it's biblical. You uh, were right last week. Um, Luke chapter 16 was thick. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Thick. So there's like so much here. And I think we we covered a lot. And I think Quite probably we have inspired a lot more questions. Yeah. And if too. they have more questions, tell them to send them in. And like I said, this is one of those chapters where it's confusing. And 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 hopefully I've provided some clarity for it. But, but even scholars disagree. And, and some people throw their hands up in the air because they don't know what's happening here. I think I've done a pretty good job of trying to explain it, but yeah. you know, I yeah, may So have, if you have confused. questions, if you want to learn more, if you want to dive deeper into any part of this, go to sandalschurch.com slash the debrief, send in your questions. We would love to answer those and keep this conversation going. Absolutely. And before we get going, next week we'll be back, of course, Luke chapter 17. Before we leave, Pastor Matt, we can't get out of here without your thoughts on a beautiful inspirational quote. Mm-hmm. This week we've got, if being good isn't working, try being outrageous. Where'd you even find that? The internet. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the whoever wrote that's going to hell. So don't do that. <laughs> try if being, if being good isn't working, try being outrageous. Outrageous. Yeah. Well, the Bible says never grow tired of doing good. Never. Ooh, never, ever, ever. Like, so Bible apparently slaps. my two co-hosts may be the rich man. I don't know. No, so that internet. No, I'm we're I'm not, gonna throw Justin under the bus. This is totally his. I'm just I'm just reading it. To yeah. do this. <laughs> Yeah. So that's why we're bringing it here, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say if you go try to bearing being good, try yeah. chocolate. Mm. So one more thing, if let me say this little quick advertisement. So um, uh, my buddy David Platt's going to be oh, here yes. next Wednesday night. Next Wednesday. I would love to see you guys yeah, that's here tomorrow night. Oh yes, exactly. Is so. it free? Uh, yeah, it's yes. free. Yeah, yeah. so up. it's free. So you can come, and so he's coming on out here, and uh, he wrote Radical, amazing book, amazing guy. He's coming to our church. So don't miss. Um, uh, we were going to have him speak on the weekend, but um, that didn't work out. So he's going to be here on Wednesday night. So don't miss. It's your one shot. Uh, get a sitter. I don't think we'll have childcare. So nope. get a sitter, but get here. You don't want to miss as mm-hmm. he talks about God's heart for the nations and why, because people are headed for an eternity apart from Christ. And this rich guy's story is real. That's, this, this is really some people's story and how tragic. And we want people's story to be like Lazarus. We want people to be helped by God. 
and, mm-hmm. and ultimately to be saved by God. So don't miss David Platt tomorrow night here at the main campus on Palmerita. I'd love to see you here. Hey, I, I just looked online. It's actually not free. You have to bring chips and guacamole. Mm. And, and then, just drop them off with a debrief crew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anybody with we'll a debrief crew. That was very shrewd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.